You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And I am your co-host, Katie Putz, coming to you also from Washington, D.C. Hey, Katie, we're finally here at the end of the year. How are you doing? I'm doing good. We made it. We made it, yeah. And uh, season's greetings, of course, to all of our subscribers and longstanding listeners. It's hard to believe, but the podcast is just a few months shy of 10 years, uh, so I really want to just remark on that we will officially do something for the 10-year anniversary which uh, will hit in february 2024 but uh katie i thought today would be good to um do what we usually do on this podcast as the year comes to a close which is a look back at the year that's just gone by reflect on some of the big trends uh developments events uh, that really defined or had a meaningful effect on the course of geopolitics in asia in 2023. So that's exactly what we're going to do. And so in preparing for this podcast, Katie and I kind of sat down and wrote down uh, eight specific things uh, that we'll talk through. And we're not going to tell you what those eight things are at the start of the episode. So you'll have to listen to go through our eight. These are eight in no particular order. So don't think of this as a top 10 list where the first thing is the <laughs> most important or anything like that. Um, this is really just uh, what you should be thinking of as we head into the new year. 2024, of course, I think is going to be um, a significant year in its own right with many critical elections around the year, lots of questions around how many of the flashpoints that we regularly discuss on this podcast will evolve. But let's uh, let's kick things off, Katie. I think the first one, um, and this is going to be familiar to listeners that just listened to our last episode, um, is really, I think, the topsy-turvy year, you might say, that it's been in U.S.-China ties. I mean, just a really big contrast between the first half of the year uh, with the uh, hot air balloon surveillance incident, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, canceling his trip to China, followed by the uh, Sunnyside Summit in San Francisco between President Xi and Biden that's now resulted in a a palpable reduction in tensions. I mean, uh, there was a uh, comment I just saw from a senior uh, Indo-PACOM official noting that, uh, you know, aerial intercepts in the South China Sea have not been observed in the way that they were in the months leading up to that. So there's been a real kind of decompression there. But uh, Katie, when you think, when you look, when you look back on the year in U.S.-China relations, um, what jumps out to you? Yeah, I mean, I think what jumps out to me is the idea of a roller coaster, really. I mean, I think we started the very beginning of the year, you know, with kind of modest hopes after the Bali summit in the previous November, and then it really tanked in February. Or was it February was Balloon Gate? That's right, um, yeah. Uh, with, with the whole balloon incident and the canceling of, of Blinken's trip, as you mentioned. And then the summer was a bit of a lull. And then we sort of saw this, uh, you know, I, I'm going to use this terrible word, uh, a reset. There was a bit of a reset, I think. And we shall see, I think, going forward, if the roller coaster continues. I think if anything, the sort of the, the Bloom Gate incident for for is 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 maybe uh unimportant as it might be in retrospect, uh really kind of blew up uh, what was hoped to be a building momentum towards a better relationship. And so I think we can't discount the possibility of another random thing kind of uh, setting this off onto a different track. But I think there certainly is um, interest on both sides to sort of better that relationship. Uh, but I, I think certainly on the, 
the U.S. side in 2024, I think, is where some of that possible instability comes from um, as we kind of head into an election year in the United States, which I think everyone kind of expects to be a bit of um, a bit of a mess. And and I, I don't think we can discount the possibility of China kind of getting pulled into that debate and that feeding into sort of diplomatic kerfuffles. Uh, what, do you, what do you think, Ankit? What are you looking for in this relationship in 2024? Yeah, I mean, the big question is, uh, you know, how long can uh, compartmentalization um, last, right? I think, mm. I, and when I, when I say compartmentalization, I think what's been interesting is, uh, despite the reset, I you know I do think that's actually a pretty appropriate term to describe what's happened in the last uh, six or so weeks. Uh, despite this reset, um, the two countries I think acknowledge are are at least more willing to acknowledge than they were in the past, and especially on the Chinese side that the the competitive. Uh, economic relationship in particular and mm -hmm. de-risking, decoupling, whatever you want to call it, uh, is la is largely here to stay, uh, even though China would prefer to be otherwise. Right. If we look back at 2023, uh, I think in parallel to many of the geopolitical tensions over um, between the U.S. and China, we, we do see a steady drumbeat of steps by both countries to punish each other economically and 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 sort of de-risk i mean for everything from kind of semiconductors the chinese ministry of commerce uh, designating uh, u.s defense firms um so i think i'll be interested to see if that compartmentalization where the u.s and china can continue to be uh if not cooperative at least communicative on things like military crisis communication can sort of coexist with this broader um, impulse in both countries right now to decouple, uh, or at least continue that process of decoupling. And, and in China, I think, you know, we discussed this when we talked about the Biden-Xi summit. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if China uh, is able to change its current economic trajectory, and if that will translate potentially to different behavior when it comes to the United States, right? There's this hypothesis that um, one of the reasons Xi Jinping in particular saw it fit to reciprocate the U.S. interest in, in resetting the relationship uh, was due to internal difficulties in China, including economic difficulties, some of the mysterious uh, leadership drama that we saw in 2023 that I think is certainly notable, mm -hmm. right? Chain, um, the departure, the disappearance of the foreign minister, uh, Qing Gang, the disappearance of the defense minister, uh, Li Shangfu, um, and uh, changes at the top levels of the rocket force. So we don't really see the full picture here of what's going on internally in China, but it may be the case that an externally more stable environment with the United States is is desirable uh, in this broader mm -hmm. landscape. Uh, so I think I think that's uh, kind of where I am on on this on this first one that we noted on our list, right? Very unsurprisingly, the U.S.-China relationship I think continues to be the central fulcrum for um, this region when it comes to um, the big picture geopolitically. Uh, and I think that that presents a good segue to number two on our list, Ankit, uh, which is the China-Philippines tension in the South China Sea. You know, the, China, the South China Sea dispute has never really gone away, but I think it's fair to say that in 2023, it really returned to headlines in a, in a big way with sort of successive incidents of Chinese vessels harassing in particular uh, Philippine vessels. Um, you know, and and so I'm I'm curious, Ankit, what do you make of the developments in the South China Sea, and how should we fit them into that sort of wider uh, geopolitical picture? Yeah, so you know, I think I think.
think this one flows rather naturally from the discussion we just had on U.S.-China ties, because I do think that there is that subtext here of U.S. Um, Article 4 commitments to the Philippines under the 1951 Mutual Defense Treaty and sort of testing the applicability of that. And as we discussed on the recent episode that we did about this, you know, the U.S. has actually made it rather explicit um, that attacks on Philippines uh, armed forces, public vessels or aircraft, including Coast Guard vessels in the South China Sea, would potentially um, invoke the um, that article, uh, resulting potentially in, in U.S. intervention. But I think from the Chinese side, this has really been more about the Philippines, right? So I think that's why, mm-hmm. um, you know, despite the fact that the the reset between the U.S. and China happened, we have seen uh, just in recent weeks leading up to late November, early December, uh, continued tensions, right? There was an incident just recently with um, where a, a Philippine resupply vessel uh, heading to the Sierra Madre was disabled uh, with water cannons that were used on that vessel by a, a Chinese maritime law enforcement ship. Uh, just, I think, under, underscoring um, this continued effort at uh, what you might call, you know, gray zone coercion by China against the Philippines. Uh, now, it's it's going to be interesting to see, I think, um, how this will take a turn or potentially not in 2014. I, I do think under President Marcos, the Philippines is um, re-emphasizing the South China Sea in a way that we really didn't see under Rodrigo Duterte when um, both the Philippines' disposition towards the South China Sea and towards the United States were very different. So I think this does hold the potential to, again, uh, emerge as a serious flashpoint. I think it still has that status right now. It's it's the most likely uh, tinderbox in the current moment in the South China Sea. Um, but of course, I think it's a good reminder that, you know, these disputes um, continue to remain relevant. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the Philippines, despite gaining wide support internationally for the 2016 arbitral tribunal ruling in favor of its maritime entitlement claims in the South China Sea, continues to struggle with China, which I think sees this kind of gray zone coercion um, as as broadly useful uh, to continue to assert China's claims and interest uh, and to manipulate that risk in the South China Sea. And, and, you know, I mean, we have to also note here that while the U.S. is trying to communicate its resolve and reassure its treaty ally, um, right? I mean, you noted that we're heading into an election year. The U.S. is currently, uh, you know, beset with crises in the Middle East and, and Europe with the continuation of the Ukraine war. And so the appetite for a serious flare-up in the South China Sea, I don't necessarily think, is in U.S. interest. So the U.S. will also be mm-hmm. eager to keep the risk here pretty bounded, which I think is how we've seen Washington and the Philippines behave so far. So I'd expect that to continue here. Yeah. And, and just one thing I want to note about this is, you know, the sort of the Chinese behavior in the South China Sea sort of harassing these Philippine vessels is not necessarily new. Uh, but I think one thing that has changed is the way that Manila has sought to communicate and sort of be transparent about these incidents and, and publicize them. It's sort of a, a you know, uh, it doesn't necessarily change the fact that they're happening because clearly they, they keep happening, but it does provide sort of a public record. And I think it, it, it does a bit of PR good for the, the Philippines to be sort of open about these incidents in a way that I think the, the previous Philippine administration sort of swept them under the rug in the interest of deepening the, the relationship with China. Um, and so I think that will probably continue uh, and and whether that is is sort of part of a, a an effort to deter the chinese uh, against sort of more serious actions we'll have to see um, but I, I think i thought that was worth sort of remarking on mm-hmm. yeah absolutely well uh let's keep going through our list uh, on this on this first episode um the next one uh that katie and i identified 
is um, really the tensions that I think have emerged between uh, the U.S., India, and Canada over uh, India's alleged um, overseas extrajudicial assassination campaign against uh, so-called Khalistani activists uh, in uh, on Canadian and uh, recently American soil, right? That latter bit uh, was uh, something that came out after Katie and I uh, initially discussed this on the podcast, uh, focusing on the initial um, assassination of uh, the Canadian um, Hardeep Singh Nijar. Um, so I think I think this one, Katie, for me is, is um, you know, I think important in the sense that it it underscores the well it, it i think underscores a trend that we've been discussing on this podcast for a few years now about india which is the extent to which the west and india uh, and, and really the u.s and india can identify their shared geopolitical interests which are i think still very real while at the same time coping with what is an increasingly divergent approach to uh, values right and and mm-hmm. as we discussed on the podcast there's also a lot of misunderstanding in both sides you know in the US about how india views the khalistan issue as a core national security interest and on the indian side about why india you know should face consequences for supporting extrajudicial uh, assassination campaigns, despite the fact that this is something the U.S. and other countries do, right? I mean, uh, leaving aside the differences between those particular cases. So it's been, it's been I think, an interesting um, moment, and I think it's uh, certainly uh, taken over a lot of the discourse on India in recent months, uh, in, uh, I think more so in Canada than the United States, but even in the U.S., I think there's been quite a bit of uh, shock, particularly by um, the community of analysts and experts who don't necessarily focus too much on India, but maybe worry more broadly about um, states with uh, authoritarian practices, uh, states that don't respect human rights, uh, resorting to extrajudicial means to deal with dissidents and critics overseas. So I think that's the context through which I see this. Um, what about, uh, what's your take on uh, this particular uh, item? Yeah, I mean, so we we discussed uh, a few months ago, you know, the the Canadian angle on this, you know, the the sort of announcement by Justin Trudeau in in September of these allegations that the Indian government was involved in the, the killing of this Sikh separatist. Um, I, I do think uh, we should we should talk maybe just a little bit about the sort of update on that, which is in in November, you know, U.S. authorities charged an Indian national for an alleged murder for hire plot targeting mm-hmm. a, a Sikh activist in the United States. Um, and, you know, the indictment stated that an unnamed Indian government agent uh, was directing this plot. Um, and so I think it's it will be interesting to see where that case goes. Uh, the 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 individual who's um, alleged to have sort of done this uh, was arrested in the Czech Republic in, during the summer and was extradited to the United States. And so I think that will be interesting to see how that court case progresses. Um, but it is also kind of fascinating to me the sort of the Indian response to these two things felt a little bit different. You know, the, the response yeah. um, from New Delhi towards towards Canada after Justin Trudeau made these allegations um, went one direction. And I don't really remember hearing much about the Indian reaction to the, the November um, uh, filing of charges. And so I, I think that that is telling about sort of where India sort of stands between these two relationships. Uh, I think this the the Khalistani movement um, has been a sore point with with Canada in particular um, because of its large Sikh population. And so, uh, you know, I think um, it's something to watch. Um, but it, it really does illustrate that that sort of 
rift um, at the same time that that we're trying to sort of deepen this relationship with India. Yeah. And I think the last thing I'd say here is, uh, you know, uh, India heads into a general election uh, in the first half of 2024, which I think raises the prospect that this could uh, potentially turn into something domestically in India that becomes mm. a, uh, a point for the uh, the BJP, the ruling party, to potentially whip up um, some nationalism internally about how India is potentially being mistreated by Western countries. So something to keep an eye on. Uh, already you do see some of that uh, in uh, domestic Indian commentary, and it's possible that that could seep into um, the higher levels of uh, the BJP party architecture heading into the general elections. All right. Well, I think uh, we're going to move now to the fourth uh, thing on our list uh, before we sort of break this episode off. And that is on the other end of Asia, uh, Russia-North Korea ties. You know, in, in September, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un made a, a rare trip abroad to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin, um, who is uh, not very popular these days uh, in the Russian Far East. And, you know, it, that was uh, you know a meeting that I think was deeply concerning for for U.S. allies in East Asia, Japan, and and South Korea for what sort of Russia can provide to North Korea, but also for Ukraine and Europe vis-a-vis um, -vis what North Korea can provide to Russia. Um, you know, I, I think, and we we did discuss this. Uh, this seems to be a thing. Uh, I like that we've summarized uh, some of the the greatest hits of the year. Uh, with this list. But, you know, I, I think w when you look at this particular relationship, Ankit, where what has happened since that that meeting in September and, and where are some of those those concerns? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like I said, we didn't rank this list, but I think if we had to rank this list, this one might be something I put at the top just in terms of um, the broader significance. I mean, in many ways for North Korea, I think this transformation in its relationship with Russia, uh, which which hasn't been a bad relationship by any means, but now I think it's just come to a different level. You know, in many ways for Pyongyang, I think this is one of the best things that's happened uh, geopolitically <laughs> since the end of the Cold War and the, uh, and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Um, so, right, I mean, w we have some more data than when we discussed this on uh, this podcast uh, after the Putin-Kim meeting. And, uh, you know, the data is, is grim, right? The North Koreans are supplying um, not just artillery shells, but uh, increasingly it appears like uh, missile systems, uh, wholesale missile systems to North Korea, although still some questions about what launchers, if any, that the North Koreans have, have been willing to transfer. Um, Russia, for its part, has openly said that uh, it no longer views the UN sanctions regime, uh, a sanctions regime that it once supported as relevant, given that that was agreed in a completely different geopolitical world. Um, and so this presents, I think, opportunities for both countries, right? Where, where I do kind of diverge with some of the analysis that's out there is that this is evidence of you know, some kind of new authoritarian axis emerging where Russia and North Korea will bond over their shared grievances about the U.S. role in the world and the liberal international order and, and, and wreak havoc. I mean, I think, I think some of what will follow as the consequence of this cooperation will be negative for that order, but I do think this is ultimately based on a transactional logic. Um, I mean, I th look, I mean, I think one of the lessons we take away from just looking at the North Korean state and how North Korea approached the Sino-Soviet split during the Cold War is that, you know, authoritarian countries of this kind, I don't think necessarily are prone to cooperate on the basis of shared values as much as we might think in a way that's at least enduring. And so I think this is going to be much more pragmatic, much more transactional. Uh, and that's still bad news because there's a lot that transactionally Russia and North Korea can gain from each other in the short term. So the big question I have is, you know, um, how uh, to what extent will this cooperation actually 
accelerate and supercharge North Korea's ability to continue um, building up its nuclear capabilities and missile forces, right? Uh, Russia's um, openly, I think, suggested that there will be transfers of satellite technology to North Korea. South Korean intelligence suspects that the recent successful North Korean space launch um, benefited from Russian technology transfers. Should we expect to see technology transfer when it comes to other parts of North Korea's um, advanced um, defense and uh, defense-related enterprises? Uh, and I think that's a real possibility. So a uh, big one to, I think, keep an eye on uh, heading into the new year. But yeah, I think for me, this is really, I think, at the top of my list uh, in terms of the broader significance geopolitically. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I would just, to, to add sort of to your analysis of that is it it's very opportunistic on bo both sides and and as as you very clearly laid out you know both north korea and russia see something that they can achieve with the other uh and and so they're they're going for it we'll see if those dynamics change in 2024 i think a lot will hinge on um how the war in ukraine goes uh because i think that is 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 a big driver for russia's interest in this relationship um but we don't really know what's going to happen next so uh stay tuned all right. Well, Katie, we'll uh, end our list of eight there on number four. Uh, for listeners, uh, please do come back uh, on the next episode to uh, hear the final takeaways that Katie and I have from 2023. Uh, but for now, we'll leave it there. Uh, if, don't forget to subscribe if you're not yet subscribed to the show. And uh, do leave us your reviews uh, anywhere you get your podcast. We really do appreciate that. So thanks a lot for listening. And we'll be back soon with more.